Well, hi there, microbiology people. This is Dr. B, and today we are going to talk about acellular pathogens. This corresponds to Chapter 6 of the OpenStax book. And when we say acellular pathogens, we are mostly referring to viruses. Viruses, as you may recall, are acellular, so they are not cells, and for that reason they are not part of the tree domain system. They present some of the characteristics of life, but not all of them. Um, something else that we mentioned about viruses is are really small. They can only be viewed using an electron microscope and their size ranges between 20 and 900 nanometers. You may uh, have heard also the word virion can be used interchangeable with viruses, but when you talk about virion, you specifically refer to the infectious particles. Now, viruses are obligatory intracellular parasite because in order to reproduce, they need to infect the cell and then hijack the metabolic machinery of their host. We have seen some cells that are also obligatory intracellular parasites. You may recall bacteria groups such as chlamydia, and there was a type of fungus that was also obligatory intracellular parasites. So not all obligatory intracellular parasites are viruses, but all viruses are obligatory intracellular parasites. Um, Structure-wise, the uh, all viruses are going to have a nucleic acid, which can be DNA or RNA, not both. And this is important because in all living organisms, in all cells, the uh, genetic, um, the carrier of the genetic information is DNA. But in viruses, we are going to see also some groups that are RNA viruses, so that's how they carry their genetic information. Around this nucleic acid, viruses have a protein coat, which is also called the capsid. In addition, some, not all, but some viruses may present what it's called an envelope. And this is how, um, you know, envelope often helps with the uh, infectious process. Regarding this infection, like what kind of cells viruses in fact, it's going to really depend on the virus. So viruses tend to have a kind of specific, what we call host range. So depending on attachment size on the surface of the, uh, of the virus and on the surface of the cells, viruses will target specific cells. And, you know, this is something that we can see easily in many infectious examples. Let's say HIV virus has an extremely narrow host range because it specifically targets the CD4 positive helper T cells. You think about common cold viruses infect cells of the respiratory tract. Um, that said, be aware that when you look at viruses in general, there is always a virus for any kind of cell. So there are viruses that infect human cells and specific human cells. There are viruses that infect certain animal cells, certain plant cells, and even uh, bacteria 
So there is a group of viruses that infect bacteria and they are called bacteriophages or phages. Please note that some people say it phages and it's all good. Doesn't matter how you pronounce it. So in the book, you can see images or figures about viral shapes. They can be, you know, very varied and you have, for example, kind of uh, geometrical shapes, helical, polyhedral, or even more complex um, shapes. And when you look at phages, so these are the viruses that infect bacteria, they have a, a really interesting shape and they're called complex viruses that looks almost like a little spaceship. Examples of viruses, well, we all know some viruses, either because we have gotten them or they are in the news, from influenza virus, HIV, common cold virus, hepatitis virus, rabies, etc. Um, how they are classified. When you read the description of a virus, and you can go to Wikipedia for that, and it gives you usually the first sentence is going to give you the, the essence of the structure of that virus. The first thing they are going to say is what kind of nucleic acid they have. So I already said that there can be DNA or RNA, but among them, they can be also double-stranded or single-stranded in either way. So if it's a, it's a double-stranded DNA virus, that's what it is, or single-stranded, and sometimes it's abbreviated as DSDNA, SSDNA. Uh, same way, you can have DS or SSRNA, and for the single-stranded, RNA viruses, you are going to see an additional layer, which is plus or minus. So let's say you're going to find plus SSRNA or minus SSRNA. What this means is that RNA is, um, again, in, in cells, RNA is an intermediate of how genetic information is processed. So DNA is the actual molecule that contains the blueprint of the cell or the instructions to make proteins and RNA is an intermediate in that process and this is something we are going to see more in detail in the genetics chapter. So um, single-stranded RNA viruses, if they're, if they're plus, that RNA is able to go seamlessly into the um, assembly line of the host cell. It kind of can basically take the, the role of the RNA in the host cell in that process of making proteins. The minus uh, SS single-stranded RNA viruses, they need to make first a plus uh, chain and then can enter that uh, assembly line. So it's really complicated, but, and, and we are going to see that RNA viruses per se are going to have a little bit more challenges in taking over the machinery of the cell because they don't fit exactly in, you know, DNA, RNA, and protein pipeline. We also mentioned that some viruses have envelopes and other not, so it, they can be either be enveloped viruses or naked viruses. 
naked viruses still have the protein coat. Okay, so all viruses will have that capsid around their nucleic acid, but when we call them naked, it only means that they have um, no envelope. Now, how do viruses reproduce? Again, it, they have to infect the whole cell, and then they have to hijack the metabolic machinery, which can be simpler or more complicated, depending on the type of the virus, and then they use that metabolic machinery at their advantage. But there are two main kinds of cycles that they can do, and a lot of these studies came from studies with uh, phages, you know, because it's very simple to culture bacterial cells and then infect them with viruses. So I'm going to explain this process mostly thinking about phages infecting uh, bacterial cells, and then we are going to see a little bit later how, how this compares to when viruses infect animal cells. So viruses can do two kinds of cycles. One is called the lytic cycle, and the other, the lysogenic cycle. Let's get started with lytic. So lytic comes with lysis, right? So it's breakage of the cell. The lytic cycle is going to result in the death of the whole cell. And the way it goes is that the, the virus, and again, this has been mostly described to phages, uh, infect the cell. And the, um, that step, when the, um, the virus attaches to the cell, it's called attachment. So attachment is the first step. The phage attaches to the surface of the host. And in the second step, the viral DNA enters the host cell. This is called penetration. Now, this is interesting because we are going to see a difference in animal cells, uh, how this... Um, entering of the virus happens. You may recall that bacterial cells have cell walls. So bacteriophages, the viruses that infect bacteria, actually don't, don't enter. So the whole virus doesn't enter the cell. What they do is that they kind of land, and again, picture this little spaceship landing on the surface of the cell, and they inject their DNA into the whole cell. So the actual, let's say, carcass of the, of the virus, the, the capsid remains outside and only the viral DNA enters the host cell. Okay, so attachment penetration. The third step is biosynthesis. So this is when the, the DNA, and notice that I'm talking specifically of DNA, right? Um, replicates and you make copies of the phage uh, DNA and also the proteins of the virus. So remember that the virus has these two main parts, right? The nucleic acid and the protein capsid. So in this step of biosynthesis, we are making, or the virus is making copies of both. It's making copies of the DNA and it's making copies of the protein coat which in the fourth step called maturation, they come together and they assemble the new viral particles. So let me just go back. Attachment is attaching the virus to the cell. Penetration is the DNA enters the whole cell biosynthesis. 
Now the virus has hijacked the metabolic machinery of the cells, so the cell, instead of doing its own thing, it's making copies of both the DNA of the virus and the proteins of the virus in maturation they are assembled so now we have new viruses inside the cell and in the fifth and last step lysis the cell lyses and that releases the newly made phages so again the the, the final result of the lytic cycle is uh, that the, the death of the host cell now there is another kind of cycle which um, it's called the lysogenic cycle. And it starts with the same, you know, attachment or penetration. But here, instead of, you know, hijacking the machinery and make new copies, the viral DNA actually becomes part of the host DNA. It becomes incorporated into the host genome. So we can picture it as kind of hiding inside the cell and as the cell divides you that dna will get copied into the new cells containing that piece of viral dna now what is interesting here is that if something happens you know it can be an environmental stressor or some something that activates that viral dna it can separate from the host genome and then start the lytic cycle. So the lysogenic cycle, we can see it as a latent uh, virus. You know, it's kind of hiding inside the cell, but it can switch to uh, the lytic cycle in, uh, you know, under certain conditions. And you can think about examples of and I'm going to say examples now of human infections, but you know how many um, viral diseases can be latent. You know, you get infected and then the virus is still in your body, but it's not doing anything. It's dormant and then there is a flare-up. So, for example, cold sores could be an example of such viral infection. You know, you get that herpes virus, it's, it's latent in your body, but then something happened, you are stressed, or there is a a minor bacterial infection, and then this viral DNA basically wakes up and provokes the sores. I also want to mention that uh, there is kind of a flip side to this, um, you know, virus getting into bacterial cells and becoming part of the bacterial DNA and staying there. Actually, that virus or viral DNA can, when it detaches from the um, bacterial DNA and becomes part of a viral particle. Again, so remember, it, it goes from the lysogenic into the lytic cycle. It can take a little bit of the bacterial DNA with it. And when it infects other cells, it may transfer some bacterial genetic information too. This is something we call transduction. And we are going to talk more about it in the genetic chapter as a way to transmit genetic information between cells of the same generation, which is kind of interesting. But um, yeah, so viruses can be carriers of bacterial genetic information as if they became part of the DNA of the bacteria and then they detach to become activated, they can carry a little bit of the bacterial information too. 
So now let's see how animal viruses compare. It's, uh, the first step is the same. So there's an attachment, the virus attaches to whatever its receptors are on the surface of the host cell. Again, we are looking at animal cells now. But in penetration, instead of the virus injecting its nucleic acid inside the cell, here the whole viral particle gets endocytose. So endocytosis or engulfment is a way of transport when the membrane, the cell membrane of the cell kind of uh, hugs the virus and brings it inside. So we are going to have the whole viral particle inside the cell. And then we have an additional uh, step that didn't exist in bacteriophages, which is called uncoating. So this is the release of the viral contents. Then comes biosynthesis, so the nucleic acid of the virus will, you know, do whatever it needs to do in order to hijack the machinery of the cell and, you know, new viral DNA and viral components are assembled inside the cell. Actually, that's biosynthesis, are made, copies are made, and then the next step is assembly where the whole new phage particles are assembled and then released, it can be also different. So very often instead of the cell lysing, although it may be killed, but if it's not lysed, it can be released via exocytosis or budding. So to recap, in the case of animal viruses, the steps are very similar, but the main difference is that the whole viral particle gets brought into the animal cell, and then there's an additional step called uncoating, in which the, uh, the content of the viral particle is released inside the animal cell. Okay, so attachment, penetration, uncoating, biosynthesis, assembly, and release. Now, we already mentioned that um, what the virus does inside the cell is going to greatly depend on the kind of nucleic acid. And because of, you know, cells use DNA as, a, as their genetic material, it's much simpler for DNA viruses to, you know, replicate inside the whole cell. Um, if it's a double-stranded DNA, the business is as usual because cells have double-stranded DNA. In the case of single-stranded DNA, um, an additional strand needs to be copied. So it, it's the same kind of like the uh, DNA of the host cell. Now, in the case of single-stranded RNA, it's more complicated because RNA in the host cell is just an intermediate of that um, process of making proteins inside the cell. So there are all kinds of tweaks and interesting additional enzymes that vi RNA viruses can have in order to make it happen. And we will see some examples of that later on. And one of those examples is a group of viruses called retroviruses. So retroviruses are RNA viruses. Not all RNA viruses are retroviruses, but all retroviruses are RNA viruses. And what is so special about 
retroviruses is they carry a special enzyme with that with them it's called reverse transcriptase okay so an example of that is hiv hiv is a retrovirus so hiv carries with it this enzyme called reverse transcriptase so once the the virus enters the cell this reverse transcriptase is going to do something extremely unusual which is making DNA using RNA as a template. This is unusual. Usually, you know, the information goes from DNA to RNA. So the information going from RNA to DNA, it goes kind of contrary to all the established mechanism. And this viral DNA made with the reverse transcriptase, then it becomes part of the host DNA. And then it just, you know, enters the usual metabolic machinery of the cell. Now, why is this relevant? Remember how we talked about when you are looking for drugs to combat infection, you want to find something that will hit the microbe, but not the host cell. You know, this is what we call selective toxicity. That's why... It's easier to find targets against bacteria versus eukaryotic pathogens because eukaryotic pathogens are more similar to us. So in this case, once, um, you know, when the HIV epidemic started or AIDS epidemic, because at that time they, they didn't know what was causing it, eventually HIV was discovered and once it was figured out it was a retrovirus the existence of this enzyme reverse transcriptase that doesn't exist in cells became this very obvious first target and that was the first target or the first um, medication that was uh, used against HIV infection AZT is a reverse transcriptase inhibitor so it kind of illustrates how knowing how a pathogen works can illustrate and aid in finding drugs, medications, agents against them. Now, from a medical point of view, of course, we are interested in viral infections. And viral infections can be broadly divided into groups, acute and persistent. Acute makes sense. You know, this is an acute uh, you know, think about common cold. You get the cold, you are sick for a few days, and then it goes away. And usually what happens is that your immune system is able to clear out the virus in a few days. But, you know, you are sick while there is a large number of infectious particles, virions, in your system. Persistent viral infections take longer, and they can be of two uh, main groups. One is latent and the other is chronic. And latent, we, you know, gave the example of cold sores before. So this is when the virus remains in the host without symptoms for long periods. <clears throat> Another example is the varicella zoster virus, which causes chickenpox. So an individual who has chickenpox, you know, it's usually it's a mild infection in children, but the virus remains, it remains latent for many, 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 many years. And then later in life, it can cause case of shingles, which is an extremely painful uh, infection. Now, chronic refers to a disease that it's actually 
happening. It's progressing, but it's progressing very slowly over a long period of time. And then eventually it may lead to death. And um, HIV AIDS could be an example. So you're going to study about HIV infection, but basically people who get infected with HIV, they have in the, you know, very kind of acute infection, which is often not even noticed because it's kind of like flu-like symptoms. And after that, HIV hides in the tissues and it is not detected for a long, long, long time. Now, again, this is when it's not treated. People who are HIV positive and receive treatment, you know, they can live for a long, long time without ever progressing to AIDS. But if left untreated, the HIV virus slowly infects more and more cells and eventually it results in the collapse of the immune system of the body and it leads to AIDS, which is an immune deficiency syndrome, you know, acquired immune deficiency syndrome, and AIDS patients don't die of AIDS itself. They die of recurring infections that they cannot fight because their immune system is so weak. Another example is the measles virus. We tend to see measles as a very mild childhood disease, but it's not. The measles virus can cause very serious um, conditions and it can lead to something called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. Encephalitis is an infection, sorry, it's an inflammation of the brain and it can be lethal. So again, acute versus persistent and then persistent we can have latent in which, you know, you it's latent and then it has flare-ups up and down, up and down. And chronic, you have this you know, progression, very slow progression towards eventually, you know, very serious um, condition or even death. Now, something that is interesting, especially if you are trying to measure the number of or evaluate the number of viral particles in, let's say, the blood of a patient, you are going to notice um, a dip uh, kind of very soon after what we call the inoculation. So let's say that a virus gets into the body, it's infection, and that inoculation is going to show us a, a number of viral particles because you know the viral particles entered the body. But after that, there is what we call the eclipse phase. And what happens is that these viral particles, the variants are going to penetrate the cells. So now you cannot see the viruses. You cannot detect them because they are inside the host cells. Then you have a large increase of the number of viral particles. This is what we call the burst, which means that the host cell is releasing many viral particles. And then eventually it it gets plateaued mostly because either for treatment or the immune system is able to control the number of viral particles. Okay, so we have inoculation, eclipse, and burst. In laboratories, you can culture viruses. I mean, it's not like bacteria that you just put bacteria in a broth and they grow. In case of viruses, you have to add them to 
a culture of their host cells. So how you do it? it it's very easy to do when you have bacteriophages, clearly, because then you just have bacteria and then you add the, um, the viruses and they're going to infect the bacteria. So that's simple. Animals, animal viruses are more difficult because us, you know, in general, we can say that animal cells are harder to culture in, in laboratory conditions. But one way to uh, produce large number of animal viruses is injecting them in embryos such as eggs or even in, in animals. So, you know, this is the kind of experiments you need to do if you are either studying the virus or if you are trying to develop vaccines against the virus. How do you estimate the, um, the number of um, viruses? Well, there are more, let's say, simpler and then more sophisticated ways. In, in the case of bacteriophages, it's very easy to do because, let's say, picture a, um, a Petri dish with a bacterial lawn. You know, you have all the Petri dish covered with bacteria and you infect it with viruses. Well, when the virus infects the bacterial cell, it's going to kill them. And then you will see a little clearing on the plate. So it's a little bit like a, um, a colony count on the reverse, you know, a negative. So instead of counting colonies, you are counting um, these clearings on the plate. And then this is what we call plague counting assay. And instead of talking about CFUs or colony forming units, you are going to talk about PFUs or plague forming unit. As for how to detect viruses, I would say that the general public has become very uh, knowledgeable about it because of the COVID epidemic. So clearly the, the most sensitive method is to actually detect the virus, uh, nucleic acid. So this is what we call, you know, the PCR test. Molecular techniques tend to be the most sensitive, but they also tend to be more complicated and more expensive to do. But that's one way to detect um, virus particles. The other is the enzyme immune assays. Um, you know, when you swab your nose to, to check for COVID, what you are testing for is the presence of certain um, proteins on the surface of the virus and this is done not looking at the again nucleic acid of the virus you're detecting proteins and this is simple to do you have uh, certain antibody assays or you know different combination of reagents that can give you a very easy to read response so again, it's easier, it's faster, but it's also less sensitive compared to the um, molecular biology techniques. And there are also other ways to, to do that. There are serological assays when you use antibodies to observe certain, um, certain effects of viruses. And in some cases, you actually have to look at cells, infected cells, to notice what we call cytopathic effect. So cytopathic effect means or refers to changes in the host cells due to the viral 
infection. And for example, this can be important in the case of rabies. So when you know somebody gets, let's say, bitten by a rabid dog or some other animal, one way to figure out if that animal has the rabies virus is to, well, you have to euthanize the animal and then take samples of their nervous uh, tissue and look for specific histological or cytological findings. So the way their cells look can be indicative of the presence of the virus. And I have um, a few minutes more to talk about other acellular pathogens. Um, so we say, okay, viruses are the nucleic acid plus the, the capsid. Well, if you remove the capsid, then you get to something called viroids and virusoids. So these are infectious RNA molecules, very small, and they can be replicating, that's why you call viroids, or non-self-replicating, which are virusoids. I don't know very much about them because they have been described for plant infection and, you know, like certain potato infections and all that. So these are very obscure little viruses. And as far as I know, so far, there is no like human uh, pathogenic virusoids, viroids or virusoids. Again, as far as I know today. And last but not least, let's mention prions. And prions were mentioned in the first chapter as something that sounds very strange, which are proteins that are infectious. And the way these proteins work is that uh, they usually happen because of mutation. So there is this protein that has changed its shape, and they tend to be associated to nervous system, mostly brain structures. And um, so the protein mutates, and now it has this very abnormal misfolded nature and in in contact with normal proteins these prion proteins are called they can change the normal proteins to become misfolded themselves this is a very slow process it takes long long time but eventually the accumulation of these misfolded proteins can cause plagues in the brain, and the presence of those plagues have been associated to very devastating um, neurological diseases. Think in animals, um, mad cow disease is, is the most known one, but we also have sheep scraping. And the corresponding example in humans is the Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Now, again, this is happens because of mutation and it's very rare mutation, so it's, it's really bad luck to have this mutation. However, they are infectious. And the reason is that this is a, the misfolded protein is extremely difficult to, um, to destroy. It usually doesn't get destroyed just by normal, let's say, cooking uh, processes. So it is transmissible by ingestion. And that's how the, the mad cow um, well, it wasn't really an epidemic, but there was a, a large surge of this disease in the 90s, especially in the UK. Um, part of the reason was that 
you know, cows that died, cattle that died, their bodies or body parts were reused as animal fodder. So basically the cows were eating other cows. And, you know, you only needed a few of these animals to have the disease to then infect other animals. And eventually that meat made its way to human consumption. And then you had more cases of um, a worrisome number of cases of Creutzfeldt-Jacobs disease, which, you know, caused a um, big moratorium on certain kinds of meats, and they had to change all the, the ways they were handling animal feed, and even um, meant that people who lived in the in the UK during those years were not considered for blood donation for a long time. So it is a, um, a very slow developing disease, but they are fatal um, if they are, you know, acquired. Oh, and then another way that they can be transmitted is by surgical instruments. Again, these are proteins that are extremely difficult to, to destroy because of that very hard, misfolded nature. And with this, uh, we conclude the chapter of acellular pathogens. Thank you.